Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the time, the appointed time for us to meet and to hear about you and what you have done for us and for all the world through your dear Son, Jesus Christ. Bless him to our hearts now and always, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, a question, show of hands. Uh, how many people have ever been to a Passover meal? Raise your hand if you've been to a Passover meal. Okay, a number of you have. Uh, there's nothing wrong with doing a Passover meal. Um, we did one here at Grace years ago. We did one in Texas many years ago as well. Uh, but I, I don't do them now, and um, I'll explain why. Number one, there are a number of symbolic foods in the Passover meal that, well, for example, uh, the egg, which represents life. Uh, there's the bitter herb, uh, very often horseradish represents the bitterness of the bond of the Israelites in Egypt. There's the salt water that represents the tears of the Israelites and their bondage and so on. Uh, the problem with all that is, uh, if you're trying to understand Jesus through that, Jesus didn't do that. Uh, those symbolic foods and the rituals surrounding them came later, after the destruction of the temple, uh, beginning in the second century, these traditions began and they evolved from there. And so if you're wanting to get close to Jesus or learn about Jesus through the, past, the modern Passover Seder, the meal, I think there's better ways to do it because I don't believe Jesus would be familiar with much of the tradition today in the Passover meal. I'm not saying it's wrong to do it. I'm saying that if you want to understand Jesus and grow closer to Christ, I think there's better ways to do that. And one would be to go through uh, adult confirmation and prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, which is a meal that he really did institute and is familiar with. And so I would recommend that above all. The other problem I have with the modern Passover meal is that you, you have, on the one hand, Jewish Christian interpretation of the symbolic foods and the rituals surrounding them. And then you have your Jewish Jewish interpretation of those symbolic foods and the rituals surrounding them. And so which are you gonna believe? You know, it's debatable. And again, it's not historical and contemporaneous with the time of Jesus anyway. And so that's why we're not gonna discuss in detail the Passover meal tonight because I think what's most important about the meal is not what people ate, even though that's important, that's not most important. What's most important from a Christian perspective is what the people did not eat, okay? Because it's not just what we eat that defines us, it's what we avoid that defines us as well. Now I'm talking about leaven, I'm talking about yeast, and I'm talking about then in Paul's letter that we read earlier, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, we're talking about sin, all right? And in the Bible, bread is the food of sin. After all, when did bread, when was bread first mentioned in the Bible? Anybody know? Genesis 3. 
context of the fall into sin, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. Now, maybe Adam and Eve ate bread before then, but they didn't have to because God had given them the fruits of the trees in the garden for food. I believe that's what they ate. They ate fruit. Now, being cast out of the garden, their diet's going to change. No longer are they going to eat the fruit of Eden. They're going to toil and they're going to make bread by the sweat of their brow and eat it by the sweat of their brow. So bread is associated with sin, and especially the leaven in the bread became associated with sin. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. Now, context surrounding the Passover. The context are the plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians as a judgment. Now, the Israelites lived in Goshen, and so if you, if, if you imagine, for example, Let's say this is Egypt. Goshen would be in the northeast part of Egypt, in the Nile Delta region. Okay? And when God sent the first nine plagues upon the Egyptians, he spared Goshen. He made a separation between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And God made a big point of this. I make a distinction between my people and those who are not my people. And so the gnats and the frogs and the flies and the darkness and all those, those first nine plagues never affected Goshen or Israel. But the tenth plague is different. The angel of death, the destruction of the firstborn. Death touches everyone. And that angel of death was going to pass over not only Egypt, but he was going to pass over Goshen as well. And the only way the people would escape that angel of death and the destruction of their firstborn was to sacrifice an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb, and put the blood on the doorposts of their houses. And when the angel saw the blood, he would pass over those homes. So it didn't matter if you were Egyptian or Israelite. If you had the blood, you were safe. Without the blood, you were doomed. You were subject to the judgment, you see. Now that brings us to point one in the outline. The Passover, we would say, proclaims Christ. Now when I say the Passover, I'm talking about Exodus 12. I'm talking about the institution of the Passover. Not the modern meal, but the original meal. The Passover proclaims Christ. Letter A, Jesus would say in John chapter 5, Moses wrote about me. That includes the book of Exodus. That includes the Passover event. Letter B, he is a lamb without blemish. St. Peter, in our third reading tonight, alludes to Jesus as the Passover lamb when he says, it's not with silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's a repetition of the demand in Exodus that only the best could be sacrificed to God. You had to give up the best to him. And then later in chapter 2, Peter writes, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And then you can go on. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is in Jerusalem, 
shortly before his crucifixion, and he's debating with the Pharisees first, and then the Sadducees, and then the Pharisees again, and they're trying to catch him in a gaff. They're trying to make him stumble in what he says so they can have grounds then to convict him, to charge him with something. But he won't play their game, and he commits no gaffes. Whatever he says is perfectly straight down the line, will of God stuff. And they can't best him in any argument. And so one by one they leave. They understand they're overmatched, you see. This man is a lamb without spot or blemish. Not only does the scripture tell us that, but even more so, we see it. We see it in how he responds and how he lives and what he does. Let her see, not a bone shall be broken. The Passover lamb was to be roasted whole, the head and the entrails and everything. No broken bones. And John in his gospel makes a point of that. You know, it was common practice when someone was crucified, um, it was Jewish, Jewish practice to not leave them on the cross overnight. They had to come down from the cross and it was already late afternoon when Jesus is crucified, well, he's, he's on the cross. He dies at 3 p.m. And so there's no need before sundown to break his legs to speed death. Even though that was a common practice. He died willingly. He willingly bowed his head, then he gave up the spirit, you see. He, I mean, he's in control throughout the entire process, even though he's the one being crucified. So not a bone shall be broken. Letter D, deliverance comes only by the blood of the Lamb. Only by the blood of the Lamb does deliverance come. And I want you to think of the Passover tonight not so much as a meal. I mean, the, the meal accompanies it. But I want you to think of the Passover as a launching event. It is the launching of a new nation. It's the formation of a people. Tonight, they will be delivered from bondage. They will become independent of Pharaoh, independent of servitude. They will be redeemed by God through the blood of the Lamb. So this is a new religious civilization that's beginning tonight in the Passover. It is the birth of a nation. And I think that's the most important thing about Passover. It's the formation of a new people through the shedding of blood. Roman numeral two. The Passover proclaims that this Christ is for you. God's redemption of Israel was a preview. It was a rehearsal of the redemption that would come through Jesus Christ. Kind of like a coming attraction at the movie theater. You're getting a taste of what is to come, you see. And I cite Ephesians 1, 7, where St. Paul writes, In him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. We've been purchased from bondage, bondage to sin. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Paul writes. This means you are God's household now. You are God's household. 
And it's, it's interesting, um, in Exodus 12, 21, which you have just across the gutter there, uh, Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. So you would have the heads of households going out. They would select the lamb without blemish. They would provide it. They would take it from the flock. They would select it. And it was a family thing. The Passover meal was family. This is what's so interesting about Jesus. When Jesus eats the Passover meal, he eats it with his disciples. His disciples are his true family, you see. It's not with his mother. It's not with his brothers and sisters. He's eating with his disciples. They are family. And now, what matters to you and me is that God himself God himself selects the lamb. God becomes your father and my father. And I cite 1 Corinthians 5. This is um, verse 7. Verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, notice this, has been sacrificed. That's what we call a divine passive meaning God himself is doing this. He's selecting the lamb, his son. He's sacrificing the lamb, which was the responsibility of the head of the household anyway. The head of the household is the household priest, the high priest there, you see. And so God becomes our father by sending his son to die for us. And this really is the birth of a new nation now, including Jew and Gentile alike. And this is why I cite 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where Peter writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's what we've been made through the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. We are formed into a nation. We don't know continental boundaries, international boundaries. The church is global. It's the first truly global phenomenon. Doesn't matter what race you are, what ethnic group you may be part of. We're one nation in Christ, a holy people. And this came about through the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ, the shedding of his blood, at the cross. That's what forms us as the people of God. It's the birth of a nation. Letter C, therefore, as a result of this, get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of the old yeast. Now, in Exodus, in the first Passover, the people had to get rid of the leaven before the lamb could be sacrificed and roasted and eaten. But with God our Father, it's just the opposite. He sacrifices his son, and then, Paul writes, for this reason, get rid of the old leaven. Get rid of the sin. You see, God gives up everything before we give up anything. That's the good news. That's the goodness of the good news. He gives up everything in his son before we give up anything at all, before we discard anything. 
This is what Paul means when he writes, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for you or me to change before he showered grace upon us. It's unconditional. It's that good, you see. So, Roman number three. Why he matters, why Jesus matters, why his sacrifice matters. Letter A. The Corinthians were proud of their broad-mindedness and their inclusivity. And the word there, the, uh, this translated proud, this is in uh, verse 2 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you are proud. That word literally in the Greek means puffed up. To be puffed up. And that's exactly what yeast does to dough. It puffs it up, you see. And they're proud of the way they've been conducting themselves. After all, Corinth is in the middle of a pagan, very sexually immoral culture. And the Corinthians are proud of themselves. You know why? Because they're bridging the divide between the people of God and the ungodly culture. They're so accepting of everything. They'll even accept a man who lives with his father's wife. Oh, they were, they were beyond us. We're getting there, but they were beyond us in terms of uh, sex between children and adults. That was perfectly tolerable. There's nothing wrong with that in, in their minds. I mean, that's paganism. That's life apart from God. They were so inclusive. They thought, you know what? We've solved this whole sin deal. We just embrace it all. And they're proud of themselves. And this is what we would say, this is tolerance on steroids, you see. Uh, we're here to serve everyone, they would say. But, in fact, they're only serving themselves because they run from any conflict. Now, you and I don't want conflict. We don't ask for conflict. But if we're faithful to God, conflict will find you. It will find me, and it does. And then we do not run. We don't seek it out, but it will seek us out. It will ask you for a reason, for the hope that is within you. And if you remain silent, it's no different than denying what is true and what is right. We owe the world more than that. We owe them faithfulness. We owe them the truth, the truth about God, the truth about marriage, the truth about how God made us male and female, and yet too often we're silent about it. We avoid conflict. We, we try to bridge the gap between ourselves and the world with this false notion of tolerance. You know, it used to be tolerance would be defined as well, I disagree with you, but I also defend your right to believe that. Now tolerance means I must agree with you or I'm a bad person. Now this, this doesn't come from God, you see. Its source is very different. And it's not who we are. Number one, tolerance of sin is no virtue. It's no virtue. Intolerance towards sin is no vice. And here's why. Number two, sin will not remain contained. 
can't contain it. It always spreads. It always corrupts. Question. If cancer is not removed, what will it do to the body? I mean, we remove cancer for a reason, right? Because it will corrupt the entire body if it's not removed. What will yeast do to a lump of dough if it's added to it? It'll take over the dough. It will not remain contained. It cannot remain contained. Letter B, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Number one, how can we retain what he died to remove from us. You know, God has planted his flag. It's called the cross. He's planted that flag and his people will string to it. His people hear his, his sheep, hear his voice and follow him. We gather around him, you see. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. This is who we are, we're drawn to him. We can't help ourselves. We've been made new. We're citizens of another place, a different country. And therefore, what the world presents to us is simply not acceptable. Redefining marriage, redefining gender, it's not acceptable. It does not lead to human flourishing, and it is not the will of God. I don't think it's that hard to say those things. I'm just one person. You know, just as the Israelites would take great pains to remove every little bit of leaven from the home, Jesus Christ has removed every little bit of sin from us. He's taken it all away. The guilt and punishment he bears, not you, not me. So number two, how can we retain what destroys us and others? How can we retain what destroys us and others? We see sin today for what it is. It is a destructive power that cannot be tamed and it cannot be contained. It can only be cast out. It's stronger than me, it's stronger than you. This is why when Joseph was confronted by Potiphar's wife, he didn't just stay around Potiphar's wife. What did he do? He fled because the sin, the temptation was stronger than he is. It's no different with you or me. It has to, there has to be distance between ourselves and the disobedience. Otherwise, whatever the disobedience touches, the disobedience corrupts. This is why Paul is so adamant about turning this sinner over to the world so he can experience the world. Let him, let him go full bore worldly so in the hopes that he will repent and be willing to hear the gospel once again. An alcoholic can't sit next to a bottle 
of wine. There has to be distance between himself and the temptation, you see. This is the way it is with all of us. Christ's death, his Passover, forms us into a different people, a new nation. And to repent of our sin is now patriotic. It is the right thing to do. It's the noble thing to do because of who we are. We are people who believe in a world that is to come. And when we repent of our sin, we telegraph to everybody that we're citizens of another country, a new nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Ultimately, that's what Passover is about. In Jesus' name.